uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. We have reached the final week of our Fresh Start series where we worked through the parable in Luke chapter 15 about the younger son and the older son, and then we worked through Ezra and Nehemiah. And this takes us to the end of, of this Fresh Start series, wrapping up Nehemiah. And it's interesting how Ezra, the book of Ezra right before Nehemiah, both of the books end in almost identical ways, dealing with the same topics. Ezra and Nehemiah were initially part of the same scroll. They show up as two different books in, in your Bible if you're looking on your phone or a, or a hard copy. But both books end with this emphasis on holiness. We've been talking about what does it look like when God gives us a fresh start in life and we have a fresh desire for his word and a fresh desire to pray and a fresh desire to be a part of the church and a fresh desire to give to others. And when God does a new work in your life, when he does a revival among his people, God gives us a fresh desire for holiness. And both Ezra and Nehemiah, as those books wrap up, focus on this idea of holiness. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or read a book and it got to the end and you thought, oh no, that better not be the ending. <laughs> like, I just devoted two hours of my life to watching this movie or I just devoted 10 hours of my life to reading this book and it ended like that? Like, I didn't sign up for that. There better be a sequel. There better be a part two to this. Like, what's going on? Admittedly, some of the books in the Bible have very surprising endings and it's, that's not an accident. There's a reason why these books end the way they do. And so I want us to walk through the ending to the book of Nehemiah for us to think about this idea of what does it mean to be holy. And this morning, if you think, man, is Owen in a, is he in a bad mood? What's going on? It's the, my, uh, my tone in, in presenting this is only meant to say, friends, we've got to take holiness seriously. If we're not careful as a church, and the world in which we live, we don't take seriously enough what it means to be a holy people before a holy God. And this morning, if you're taking notes, there are five elements, five calls to holiness in Nehemiah chapter 13. And I just want to show you these five as we go along, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on number five than we will the others. Think about what does it mean to have a fresh desire for holiness and ask yourself this question, why does it matter? Why is holiness such a big deal? Why does it matter if we don't have holiness as the people of God? Friends, holiness, the life that we live, has a generational impact. And the life that we live, our decisions have consequences that go just beyond ourselves. Many of us realize that when we sin, when we rebel, rebel, when we turn against God, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your family, your friends, your church family. Joshua chapter seven in the Old Testament, God is sending the people into the promised land and they're fighting these battles and they're moving ahead with the mission. And you get to Joshua chapter six and they go into Jericho and one of the people there takes something that they weren't supposed to take. They rebel against the Lord, they don't show holiness, and they go to fight the next battle and they get destroyed in a game they should have won. And they find out it's because one of the people in the camp was not living a holy life. They had kept back something for themselves. The way that you live impacts those around you. And when we don't live with holiness, it impacts our ability to advance the mission that God has put in front of us. 
And there are things that God wants to do in your life, and there's things that God wants to do in this church, but friends, we must be wholly devoted to him to understand who he is as holy and who he's called us to be. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. Nehemiah 13, 1. On that day, as Nehemiah calls the people back together, they read from the book of Moses. So they're reading from, from God's word in the hearing of the people, and in the scriptures, it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So here's the people of God opening up the word of God, just like we're doing here. We're opening up the word of God. Help us to see your truth, God, so that, that we can respond. And we know that at this point, they're reading from Deuteronomy chapter 23, and there are very explicit instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 23 that those who are Ammonites or Moabites are not to be brought in to the assembly of God. And you say, well, that's rude and, and exclusive, and, and what's going on there that, that they're doing this? Well, they're talking about the Moabites and the Ammonites as the enemies of God, as those who worship other gods. And if they just invite them into the assembly, into the temple, into the tabernacle at that time, if they just invite them in, there's going to be a mixture of worship. They're going to be worshiping their gods. The people of Israel are going to be worshiping Yahweh. There's going to be all these things brought together. Now, we need to remember the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. God is not opposed to the Ammonites and the Moabites coming in and being a part of his people, but they come with humility. They come worshiping him, not their other gods. The book of Ruth is an example of someone who does come from these groups, but she comes in worshiping the Lord. So this is the idea going on here. None of these people should be brought into the assembly if they're going to worship their own gods. Verse 2. For what reason? Well, earlier in the story, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water. But that famous funny story you learned in kids' Sunday school class, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. Verse 3, as soon as the people heard this law about no Ammonites or Moabites coming in, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Point number one this morning is when God does this work among the people, the first call to holiness is a desire for a holy church, a holy assembly. When God calls his people back to him, when he gives us a fresh start, our desire is that as his people, we would come together holy and devoted to him, that we would be separated from sin and dedicated completely to him. Now hear me out on this, okay? Hear me out on this. This is not establishing a cult. This is not cutting ourselves off from the world around us, that Jesus sends us out to be in the world but not of the world. There are those things that we are called to do. But when we talk about being the church, when we talk about being gathered together as the people of God, we come together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That we are made holy in Christ through salvation, through ongoing repentance. When we think about being a church, we're not a social club. We're not just another organization that someone signs up for. We're not something you buy your way into. We're not something you're born into. We become a part of the church because we are made holy by Christ. And if the church is defined by anything else, we have no hope to go forward. And so we begin this morning saying, God, make us holy. We want to be a holy people completely devoted to you. 
Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. Maybe just a quick comment here. We've seen Tobiah before, and we know not to like him, okay? So, so Tobiah has caused so much trouble in Ezra and Nehemiah. He's gotten in the way of everything that's been trying, they've tried to do with the temple and the rebuilding of the walls. And now we have a high priest who's supposed to promote holiness among the people who is connected to Tobiah, and you know this is not going to end well. Like, this is, this is not going a good direction because here— he is preparing for Tobiah this large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the seniors, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. Verse 6, now Nehemiah says, while this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, I wasn't living in Jerusalem at that time. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. And verse 7 says that Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem, where he discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber." That kind of brings to mind the story of Jesus going in and clearing out the temple and turning over the, table, uh, the tables of, of the money collectors, the tax collectors. Why is Nehemiah so upset? Because Tobiah has been given a place by one of the holy leaders where he's not supposed to have a place. That they have disregarded what it means to make the temple of God, the place of God, holy. And Nehemiah... You're going to find out in Nehemiah 13, he's a pretty fiery character. Like if you live with a little bit of an edge of a temper, you're going to identify well with, with Nehemiah. He is righteously angry because of the way that these religious leaders are acting here. Verse 9, then Nehemiah gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Point number two. When God does a fresh work among a people, when God is bringing revival, there is a fresh desire among that group of people for holy leaders in the church. When God is doing a fresh work, when he is moving his people forward with a new mission, seeking to do what he's called them to do, there is a desire among the people for leaders who are completely devoted to the Lord, separated from sin, dedicated to him. 1 Peter chapter 5 talks about this idea of, of under-shepherds, under the Lord, who, who don't lead because they have to, they do it because they want to. And, and leaders who aren't greedy to get what they can get out of it, but they do it because they eagerly want to serve the people. And, and they're not domineering, they're not out for a power trip, they just want to serve the people. And when you're a part of a holy church that is seeking to move forward with the mission of God, you need people in leadership who are there to be servants, who are wholly committed to the Lord. And does it feel awkward for me to be saying all of this to you right now? Yes, it does. It completely does. And mainly, it feels like this massive million-pound weight on, on my shoulders. And not just me, but, but those who God, by his goodness, has placed in our church family in a position of spiritual leadership 
which is a way of saying servant leadership, which is a way of saying holy leadership, which is a way of saying if it ever becomes about us and not about Jesus. Friends, we are so far off the course at that point. When as a church, God is raising up in your heart a desire for revival and a desire for his mission to move forward, you as a church have a right to desire holy, godly, humble, servant, spiritual leadership. It's a good thing that we see God doing among his people. Verse 10, I also found out, Nehemiah says, that the portions for the Levites that should have been given to them had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the seniors who did the work had fled each to his field. What's happening here? The spiritual leaders, the servant leaders for the people, they're not receiving payment. They're they're not being cared for in the way they're supposed to be cared for. Why? Well, financially, times aren't good (laughs) at this point. So the people don't have a lot of resources because they've been building the wall. They've not been at their farms doing their work. So the resources aren't good at this point. Some of the people don't trust the leadership. And guess what? In the 21st century, if you don't trust the leadership in the organization, you're probably not going to financially contribute to that organization. And so the people had stopped giving because they didn't like what was happening with the leaders. And then, frankly, the people had just gotten out of the discipline, out of the habit, out of the calling that God had given them to contribute to the Levites. So what are the Levites doing? They're saying, we've got to go find another job. We're not being provided for. So they had to flee to their fields to start doing work so that they they could make what they need to provide for themselves and their families. Verse 11, what does Nehemiah do? So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God being forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. What does Nehemiah do when he finds out the Levites aren't being cared for? He calls the people to account and says, guys, we can't be doing this. We are forsaking the house of God, these that God has placed in here to serve us and to lead us forward. We're forsaking them. We're not doing what God's called us to do. And what does he do? He knows the trust level is about this deep among the people. So he comes in and puts in administrators who are going to take care of the money. That way the people know, hey, you can trust where this money is going. You can trust how it's going to be utilized. You've got to love Nehemiah's wisdom in this situation. He calls the people to account, hey, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, and then he puts in a system that makes them want to do what they're supposed to do all along. He puts in administrators and treasurers and those that the people will trust that if they give their money, they know it's going to be going to the right place. When God does a revival among his people, when God gives them a fresh start, their hearts are drawn to see those in servant leadership supported and cared for so that the mission will continue forward. The people of God coming together, trusting one another, putting in place systems so that the mission will keep going forward. Next, verse 15. Actually, verse 14, I almost skipped over verse 14. It's just a good reminder of of what Nehemiah is thinking at this point. Verse 14, if you're still looking at your phone there. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Nehemiah's desire to do this work. Now verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Now you can feel the next topic coming, right? <laughs> it's how people are treating the Sabbath. And, and this is going to be another element of holiness that's identified here. Verse 16. The Tyrians, also another group of people nearby who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. There's Nehemiah coming. <laughs> he says, if you're going to keep doing this, I've got ways to deal with this. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Apparently, Nehemiah was a pretty intimidating guy. Um, then I commanded the Levites, verse 22, that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Fourth call to holiness in Nehemiah 13 is a desire for holy worship and holy rest before the Lord, to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. When God is doing a fresh work among his people, when God is doing revival among his people, there will be a desire to set apart this time to worship him, to rest, to trust him, because, because, don't miss this, when we don't fully trust the Lord, we feel this need to, I've got to work every minute of every day. This is the only life I'm going to get. I need to have all the pleasures of life. I need to pursue every activity. I need to do all these things. But what happens when you trust the Lord? You can slow down. You can step back and say, God, I need time just to rest. I need time to remember how good you are. I need time to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ to worship. When we don't trust the Lord, we take it all back in and say, I've got to work all the time, I've got to do all these things. But when God does a fresh work among his people, there is desire to have Sabbath. There is a desire to rest. There is a desire to worship because we trust the Lord and we love him and we want to honor him with our lives. When you devote to the Lord, times of worship and rest each week, it not only impacts that day, it impacts every other day that you live. Worship and rest is not a one-time thing, it's something that characterizes our lives because of our devotion to the Lord. A holy church desiring holy leaderships, holy, holy leaders, 
who are well cared for, who are devoted to worship and rest. What's number five? Look at number five. Verse 23. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Just a quick stop there to make sure we understand where we're going with number five here. Not only were people from other nations being brought into the assembly just to worship their own gods and be a part of what was going on, but the people of God were intermarrying with other nations, other groups of people, and when they intermarried, these new families that were formed were just serving all the gods together. So the husband says, well, I'll serve my God. And the wife said, well, we're going to serve my God. And before you know it, the kids are like, what God are we going to serve? And they're not speaking the language anymore, so they're disconnected from the scriptures. You can see the way that these marriages are having a generational impact. Because now, not only are the kids concern, confused about what God they're going to worship, but the kids don't have access to the scriptures because they don't even know the language to be able to access the scriptures. Holy marriages have an incredible impact upon the people of God. How we treat marriage, how we treat the home. And, and just a quick note, and I, know, I don't think there'll be confusion about this, but let me just say this. This passage is not about marriages of one ethnicity to another in contemporary life. That is absolutely not the purpose behind this. This is about those who are devoted fully to the Lord seeking to marry those who are worshiping other gods and the result of that. This is not about a person of one skin color or one ethnicity marrying another skin color or another ethnicity. Completely different situation. This is about issues of idolatry and worship that are being confronted here. Verse uh, 25. So what does Nehemiah do? <laughs> well, prepare yourself <laughs> for what Nehemiah does. I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. All right, so you want to know how Nehemiah feels about unholy marriages. He confronts them, <laughs> he curses them, he beats them, and he pulls out their hair. That's right. Nobody, you know, practices on anybody else. If you see anyone bald, it doesn't mean they have an unholy marriage. It's just, an, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. All right, I didn't pull anybody's hair out. But you can see how intensely Nehemiah feels about what's going on here in this situation. He makes them, the middle of verse 25, he made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves? Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? When God does a fresh work among his people, when he does a revival and calls his people back to him, there is a desire for holy marriages. There is a desire that we honor the Lord with us, our sexuality as the people of God. Friends, in our world today, 
as things devolve into absolute chaos around the subject of sexuality and marriage, we have an opportunity like never before to display the goodness of God to the world around us, to display the holiness of God to the world around us through how we treat the topics of marriage and sexuality. Now, is this easy? No, not at all. We don't understand uh, at all the world in which our kids and teenagers are growing up. The chaos, the confusion, the lack of any guidance around gender and marriage and sexuality, we can try as adults to understand that. We don't. We don't fully understand what, what they're growing up in. But what we do know is that when God works among his people, he calls their hearts back to purity. And when God works among his people, he builds up homes where the people are devoted to holiness. And so this morning, I don't know your situation in life, what you might be going through, but I can tell you that God is calling us to a fresh start with purity. That God is calling us to flee sexual immorality. That as his people, we are so committed to holiness that we will flee sexual immorality and, and, and understand what that word means, understand what that involves. Pornography is an unbelievable addiction and scourge in our world. And it's so easy to get caught up in pornography. And, and the worst about it is the shame and the guilt that it brings and, and the way that we go into hiding and, and don't want anybody to know that we're struggling with this. And yet people are. And there's dignity and there's freedom and there's hope beyond that as God draws us back to himself, how easy it is to, to get into situations where we justify sexual intimacy outside of marriage and in so many different contexts, and, and yet God is drawing us back saying, I'm doing a new work, I'm, I'm, I'm calling you back to trust me with this gift of, of marriage and sexuality, and, and just how quickly we can find ourselves in lust and in so many other types of sexual immorality. Flee that, why? Because we want to glorify God with our body. Now here's a, here's a neat connection, so stay with me. We're, we're reaching the end, but, but the book of Nehemiah, we've said this a couple of times, but the book of Nehemiah, as you see the building of the temple and the building of walls, it's about the display of God's glory to the world. Then you get to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, and it says that our body is the temple of God, and through how we use our body, we are displaying God's glory to the world. The same thing that you find in Nehemiah about the people wanting to display the glory of God to the world, the New Testament says how we treat sexuality, how we handle our body, the way we live displays God's glory to the world. And if you hear those things, you hear pornography, you hear sex outside of marriage, you hear struggles with lust, things you watch, things you listen to, how you handle your body. If you hear those things, hear the gospel, okay? Hear the gospel that God calls us back to him. That there's hope, that there's forgiveness, that there's peace found through Jesus. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you don't have 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 written in the front of your Bible, write that down. One of the great verses in the whole scriptures, all of these things that would separate us from God, and yet Paul could say, yeah, you once were that, but not anymore, because you got your life together. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Not because you got your life together. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. You were made holy because of Jesus. Nehemiah cursed the people. Jesus took your curse. Nehemiah beat the people. Jesus was beaten for you. Nehemiah ripped out hair. Jesus' hair on his beard was ripped out so that in giving his life, you would be made holy as you trust in him, that you would be called back to him, that you would find salvation, not because you got your own life together, but because you turned your eyes to Jesus. And no matter what this world would offer, that you would say that Jesus is better than that. No matter what you're facing right now in life, that you would say that Jesus is better than that. That you wanna be a part of a holy people who are devoted to the holy mission that God has put before us. And friend, it is a path of holiness and it is the path of the gospel message. And if you've been rebel rebelling against the Lord, if you've been living in sin, whether it's sexually or any other kind of sin, that this morning you would not leave with guilt, but you would leave with hope. Hope because of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us. And then we're gonna stand and sing that Jesus is better. That no matter what difficulty, no matter what we chase in this life, Jesus is better. And you may be here this morning and you have been living under a weight of guilt and shame and embarrassment and sin and God is calling you this morning to trust him, to repent of your sin and to trust in the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. You may be here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus for salvation. Can I tell you that today is the day of salvation? That as we sing, that you would come for prayer. Maybe this morning, because of the topic of calling people to holiness, maybe it's just a matter of you just come down at the steps here, and you just pray individually, pray with your family. Whatever God is calling you to do, let's respond to him right now. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that in our world today, it, it's not popular, to talk about holiness and purity. All these topics this morning about giving to church and, and the importance of spiritual leadership and honoring the Lord with our bodies and our sexuality. God, these are not, these are not easy things. But the way we handle these things communicates to the world around us what we truly believe about you and displaying your glory to the world. And God, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you that we don't carry this weight on our own. That we have been washed, we have been justified, we have been sanctified. And God, as a church this morning, we want to be a holy church. 
separated from sin, and completely devoted to you. And so God, right now, I pray that you would call people to repentance. I pray that you would call people to salvation. I pray that you would call people to sing this song with all of their hearts because they believe these words that Jesus is better. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.